All right, well, I am happy to be joined again today by Jennifer Friend and Jenny Holland. Again, three Jennifers having a conversation. I actually, sorry, I have to, I have to correct that. My actual name is just Jenny. Is it really? really? Yeah. Sorry wow. to be a total pedant, but it's like, I can't. I can't no, that's good. Thank you for telling me that. That's really interesting. Yeah. Just Jenny. Anyway. Yes, I always thought Jenny. it was cool when, um, when people give their kids like a, a nickname name. Yeah. 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 It's like an old folk name. Anyway, we don't need to go into it. But Is yeah. it? No, that's okay. Yeah. No, I'm interested in that. That's cool. Like the spinning Jenny and the Jenny Wren. Like it has some sort of like old English connotations or something. It was also the name mm. of Karl Marx's wife, which I think I mentioned before. And, you did, yeah. And Winston Churchill's mother. So I think my parents mm. were both were influ influenced by both of those mm. uh, very uh, polar opposite um, influences. Yeah. Well, you anyway. took the wind out of my three Jennifer's sail. Yeah, Beth, sorry. But, but, but I'm glad to have the correction because I don't want to give somebody the wrong name. No, that's cool. Um, I, uh, <clears throat> I had a weird relationship with having the name Jennifer growing up. And when it was so popular, it was like yes. every, uh, I think that there were like, there were down to people using their second letter of their last name to distinguish them from other yeah. Jennifers because you had Jennifer E, Jennifer V, Jennifer C, Jennifer CH and people who had to, popular yeah, name. yeah, it was yeah. a really weird time, uh, you know, having a name <laughs> like, and so did you feel like Jenny helped you to distinguish? Did you have a bunch of Jennifers and then you were Jenny? Yes. Yes. In fact, my best friend in, in elementary school was called Jennifer. Um, and so I just was like, I, I just, it's like a, it's like, I'm like a trained dog. I'm just like, no, it's just Jenny. Cause I was constantly yeah. being called Jennifer. And it was just like this day, like just Jenny, just Jenny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I had the, I, I always went by my middle name. So I never yeah. used Jennifer um, at all, but it would be like, this thing where people would find out that my first name was Jennifer and it would, and I would get the, so your real name is Jennifer. I'm like, no, <laughs> Leslie is my real name. It really is my middle name. <laughs> How about you, Jen? Oh, well, I went by Jenny until I yeah. was 18 and then I decided I needed a change. So I started saying Jennifer, but now I go by all three, Jen, Jennifer, Jen, Jenny. Yeah. I totally don't care at all. That's kind of what I like about the name because you can do yeah. different things with it. So you don't get sick of it. Yeah, yeah that's true. That's I go true. by Jen too. Most people call me Jen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Very interesting. I wonder why nobody ever uses the second half of the name. Why is nobody Niffer? <laughs> <laughs> hey you know i used to work someplace that <laughs> this is hilarious so um i when i was in college i worked cleaning lobbies of an apartment building for this cleaning company and the guys there had these little crude names for me <laughs> and oh one of God. them got fired because he wrote it all over the wall although i didn't think it was offensive i thought it was hilarious he called me jenna furry Oh my gosh. <laughs> and then and then a friend there of mine used to call me genitalia. Oh. <laughs> That's a bridge too far. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I was the only female working there and they gave me a lot of crap, but I thought it was hilarious. Wow, that's funny. That's funny. Well, I guess that segues pretty nicely into the yeah. conversation that we we were going to have today about yes. uh since it deals with male female relations. Um the last time we talked, we spent um, the 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 portion of the time mostly just like talking about marriage and the merits of marriage. We were responding to that article about a society without marriage, a world without marriage, and and this kind of attack on 
on um, you know traditional married life or the value of marriage in society. And near the end, we sort of started this conversation around polyamory, non-monogamy, ENM, ethical non-monogamy, and monogamy and porn. And uh, it seemed like that would be a good area to explore in a longer dialogue because we just didn't have time to really do it justice and there's a lot there. And so I don't really have a prompt. I just kind of curious to go into your thoughts about those things. And um, yeah, what do you what do you two think? Well, I, I mean, ethical non-monogamy is something that I have thought a lot about um, and have had very direct experience with, um, although the term itself has just appeared out of nowhere to, in, in, in my, in, from what I've seen anyway. But um, I, I've known, I've been very close to people, very, very close to people, i.e. my parents had a, had a marriage like that. We used to just call it an open marriage. Um, and I even sort of gave it a, gave it a try myself. Um, and so I've seen it up close um, and I don't think it works to be perfectly honest. I mean, actually, I would say, I think there's always going to be a unicorn, right? There's always going to be a story of, of it working for some people. And you could actually make an argument. And I know my mother certainly would make an argument that it did work for them. They were actually a very happy, happily married couple. My father died quite young, unfortunately. Um, but they were married for the better part of 30 years and, um, you know, they, they made it work. Um, the fact that I, the fact that it worked for them and they remained devoted to each other in many ways did, didn't, in my opinion, as their kid did not outweigh the costs. There was a lot of hurt along the way. And, um, for many different people, actually not, you know, not just my mother. And um, yeah, so the fact that it's being thrown around so casually now and it's become kind of a trendy alternative to monogamy, I mean, it's just yet another symptom of the just growing uh, sex mania. <laughs> Not to sound like a Bible basher, but this kind of obsession with like sexual variation. Um, that is just dominating our culture at the minute. And I think it's kind of a, a symptom of a, of a sickness. Um, I mean, I, I've written before, like, I feel like people should be allowed to have alternative lifestyles and they should not be punished for those lifestyles, but it's really only for a very small select few. Only a very small number of people can really handle that. I think my parents probably were in that category, but these things shouldn't be mainstreamed because People, everyone can be, some people can be eccentric and live outside the, the norms, but if everyone lives outside the norms, suddenly we're in a really dark place. And lo and behold, we are in a really dark place. What a coincidence. Hey, Jenny, when you mentioned your mom having pain around that arrangement, was the arrangement that both, both of them could have relationships with outside parties or this was something that just your yes. dad was doing? Yes, but it was for, I mean, by the rules as, as I understand them, yes, but I don't think my mother availed of that uh, privilege or right or whatever. Um, it was really a setup that benefited my father. And it was very much like, it, it was very, when I read these stories of like throttles and, you know, cubes or whatever, 
Like, it, I mean, it wasn't quite that. And it also didn't have this sort of self-regard because no one was talking about it. And it was completely a complete aberration at the time. But like, it, it was along those lines. Like these people were friends that I knew them. Um, they were caught, they were just, they were, they, I thought of them sort of as aunties. Um, and I spent a lot of time with them and uh, from, from much from childhood. Um, so in theory, it was open to all parties, but um, it was really, it was really my father's deal. He was, he, you know, he, my parents were bohemians. Um, my mother had been a Trotskyist, uh, basically until she met my father, she was like a political, you know, she, she was a, yeah, she, she was in the socialist workers party and she was an organizer and all this stuff. And my father was a poet and, uh, it was the seventies and, you know, it, it, they just went with it and they stayed, they, it was their operating system. It was the operating system of their marriage. Um, you know, I don't think that now that I'm a middle-aged, so, so when I was in my twenties, I thought when my teens and my twenties, I thought to myself, well, I think they were right. I, I went through a long phase. Like I kind of grew up thinking that they were in the right and they were just very enlightened and they were very sophisticated and they were very mature. And in many ways they were all of those things, um, you know, um, but now that I'm in my mid to late forties, uh, I don't see it that way anymore. I see it as, as an indulgence and, um, a lack of, uh, discipline and a lack of boundaries. Um, and I think that monogamy is essential, even though it's really, really hard. It's not an easy thing. You can make an argument that it's not natural. Um, but it's, it is for the greater good, whether we like it or not. Yeah. I'm not terribly sympathetic to these arguments that it's not natural because we do plenty of things. There's plenty of areas where we restrict ourselves. It's very natural when you have to have a bowel movement that you want to go immediately, but you don't see yeah. people just walking right. down the sidewalk going, eh, here looks good. You well, know, you we do now. We have, right in some <laughs> cities, right, right. But you know, we restrain ourselves. And so exactly. I, the whole, it's not natural argument. I've heard that again and again, and I, I don't really think that that is very persuasive. But I just wonder if this is too much attention on you, just just tell me, but I wonder why do you think your mom agreed to such an, an arrangement if she was not going to avail herself of it? I mean, I don't know for a fact if she did or didn't. It's not something I would, I would want to ask her directly. Um, I think, this sounds trite, but I really do think it, it was a really huge factor. She had just, when she met my father, she was living in, in France. And she, uh, you know, you know the, what the French are famous for. Um, and it was, just the, it was just the water they swam in. I mean, they were very much counterculture. And they had no interest in being in the mainstream culture. They had no interest in being accepted. They didn't give two shits, actually. Which, you know, I, I have admiration for that uh, up to a point anyway. But um, she herself didn't consider it to be a natural state. She had, you know, she had grown up in a repressed, both my parents actually had grown up in a very strict Catholic, uh, well, my mother in a strict Catholic family and my father in a strict Catholic society. And it was repressive and punitive. And they were rejecting the sexual mores of their upbringing. And, you know, that made sense. I mean, the thing that they, they are too, they, they, are, they were, they were, they were too early in the sense that they haven't really, well, my mother is still, my mother sees it now, but my father died in 2004. So he didn't live long enough to see how that kind of, that perspective has actually kind of like infected this broader society 
and has turned into this sort of Sodom and Gomorrah-like world that the, you know, the really lame Bible bashers and like dorky Christians and the, and the homophobes were banging on about in the 80s in the moral majority. Like they actually turned out to be correct, you know? And I think, I mean, you can, you can say, no, they didn't, no, they didn't. It didn't really, it wasn't, it wasn't because of that. It wasn't because of this, blah, blah, blah. It was maybe these other reasons. I mean, whatever. It's like you put a lot of salt in your cake, your cake is going to be salty. And like, that's how this, this thing has shaken out. Now, I mean, my parents weren't like responsible for the, the wider decrepitude of society, but they were part of a counterculture that has just kind of like metastasized somehow. And in a way, I almost resent it too, because I'm like, y'all ain't counterculture. Like you are actually very mainstream. Like you don't know how to handle yourselves because my parents actually, you know, for their flaws, they, they did handle themselves with dignity and a certain amount of discipline. They weren't messy hoes, you know? Like they, 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 they had, they had structure and the house was, you know, like there, there were certain, there were boundaries, not as many as I would have liked, but there were boundaries. Um, and now everyone's running around, like, you know, basically crapping in the street, as you say, Jen. And I, I find it resentful. Like I was like, I'm, I'm really of that, of that, of that culture and y'all aren't doing it right. And funnily enough, I'm not doing it at all anymore. I'm a total normie now. <laughs> So there was kind of a sophistication and a cachet to it yeah. that your your mother, if if you if you want to almost sort of project yourself into her position, she's she's opting for that and for what that means about her and sacrificing certain other things in the process. Yes, one hundred percent. Yeah, I think that's a very fair assessment. Yeah, I think that's part of the difficulty though, because I can understand in that time. It was kind of it's kind of hip and cool and edgy and so I could see it having an appeal even if you yourself are not going to engage in it um but I think that there's a lot of um in different relationships there's there's a bit of coercion where one person really wants it more and it really suits that person more and the other person sometimes agrees to it because I think this is the only way I can be with this person right and I can, I can hold on to this relationship and I can kind of contain this person by being yes. their, main, their main person, their highest priority. Yes. But, well, um, but it's not really what they want and they're, they're being injured by it's being an interesting that type of relationship. Like it, when you're describing that, Jennifer, I'm picturing almost a um, like an adaptation or an add-on to the traditional female mating strategy or to the conventional female mating strategy, which is to be more um, the the you know if we're going to just go really archetypal and general speaking, you know the male desire for um, variety and the attraction and the higher sex drive and the interest in more partners and the female with more of an interest, a baked in interest in monogamy and stability within that relationship. But in a, in a culture that allows for a lot of sexual permissiveness and openness, it's almost like the, in order to, um, be successful in a relationship with this particular man, with your father, who was uh, of this, in a time and a place where he could avail himself of multiple partners and maintain that kind of relationship going forward in order to adapt herself to be somebody that he would want a long-term relationship and commitment with, she almost had to adopt a more flexible mating strategy and accept that in order to make herself competitive in that, in that way, in 
and make herself the most appealing long-term partner. And I mean, I, I think I'm kind of butchering yeah. that, but what, no, not at all. I think there's a certain element of gatekeeping and status, um, that will come along inevitably if you're doing the, the, uh, ethical non-monogamy where you have a primary partner and then you have other partners dotted mm-hmm. around the place mm-hmm. because the person with whom you were domiciled and my parents had shared a child, um, um, they, that person is obviously the number one, like you're the first wife essentially, like, right. you know, but, but I, I have to say, like, I think my mother's attitude to sexuality was as, if not more open than my father's, like coming when they came into that relationship. I don't really want to go to talk too much more about, but, um, we can they, anonymize you know, this and be more conceptual if it's helpful, because I, yeah. I don't want to make it just, it, this is your, this is a concrete experience that you've been very yes. close to. So it's really easy to keep coming back to that. But I'm also aware that it is drawing from something that's intensely personal. So if you want to speak in more general it's, terms, but it's that's okay. why I it had, you know, because I, because I, I've, I've seen this happen in, in the, in the old days when society was much more conventional and I'm seeing it in reflected in social media and in pop in, in culture now. And I, I see a difference. I mean, like I said, I am not down with ethical non-monogamy or, or any kind of non-monogamy um, I think it's not a good thing and it should not be celebrated, but I can see, I, I think that, you know, again, in these sort of like little niche bohemian worlds, you know, where, where you're talking about artists and <laughs> poets and whatnot, I mean, I, I don't mean to sound pretentious, but this is, this is actually true history. There's always been these kind of, um, relationships and these kind of, and these kind of scenarios, like always back in the old days when women had huge paid huge costs for oops jenny froze up she froze up for you too jennifer their domestic situation Mm -hmm. to suit their own needs no matter how much society may may, wider society may have approved or disapproved um i think what's troubling now because people can do their own thing like i i can you know i can mind my business but what i find troubling now is that it's almost being like pushed as a totally normie mainstream thing that everyone is going to be happy with all at all times. And that's just yeah. completely bizarre. Like that's bizarre. It is. And it's very creepy, just like all of this, the all the wider sexualization of society and culture is. Like it's a very unnerving thing to me. So that yeah, that, that um trajectory from the fringe, from the more um, experimental edges of culture into mainstream is that inevitable and if not who is to determine who can participate in edgy fringe things and and who's excluded from that that's a really good question is it inevitable it certainly looks that way to me um it certainly looks like the slippery slide that like the the boring christians all warns about but who gets to participate i mean i don't think no, no one can decide that. I think people self-select and they self-select based on what is surrounding them and what is the norm and what is, what is being kind of what, what they're being influenced by in their, in their communities and in their culture. And that's why people are picking up on this now, because I can tell you 35 years ago, there was not, this was not being reflected in mainstream in like cosmopolitan. It really, I mean, maybe it was, but I, you know, I don't think it was to this degree. Um, 
And, and now it is now, now it's everywhere. So people are getting this idea that, Oh, well, I'm sure it's fine. And I had that idea when I was in my twenties and I, or when I went to university and I tried a relationship like that and it was awful. I hated it. And I hated every minute of it. I mean, I hated every, you know, I, I never, I never could get over the pain I felt when my boyfriend ethically cheated on me because I had, I had given him permission to do so again, content. And that was the contingency of the relationship. Like he did not want a monogamous relationship with me. And I accepted that. And every time he was non-monogamous to me, I was devastated and I was non-monogamous to him and he didn't really seem to care, but I didn't even enjoy that. You know what I mean? It was like, it was not, it was, it was a, it was a very painful four years of my life and I've never done it since. I think this is really set up to serve male sexual desire or when I've seen women want to, who are married, start talking to their husband about an open relationship. It's generally been because she is on her way out of that relationship. It's become dissatisfying and she's got an internal struggle where she's trying to keep it afloat but she sort of can't and she's trying to get some needs met right. and maybe establish some, some level of security and intimacy outside of the relationship. I just think that this work, we've now stupidly, stupidly put ourselves in this position of all hail the penis. And I, I, I really think <laughs> that that's what this is, this is set up for. And these, these open relationships, like you said, every single time you suffered so much when he would ethically cheat on you and I've seen this in people who are in these relationships where they constantly have to have these conversations to try to right the ship, which gets thrown off course every time somebody goes outside of the relationship. Um, yeah. And also, this is the thing, though, that I will say that pisses me off the most. Because this is now in normie land, this has made it harder for women to establish stable, secure monogamous relationships because the doors are now open where it's no longer scandalous to consider something alternative and so women are now having to fight harder to negotiate for monogamy and sometimes they're having these conversations post-marriage all of a sudden what used to be absolutely expected and that was considered reasonable we now have to negotiate for it battle for it even even if the woman has had a baby. And I still think women are always going to be more physically and emotionally and economically vulnerable in relationships because we are the ones that bear life and bring forth life. And the risk and the vulnerability that comes with that can only really be supported properly within the context of a very stable monogamous relationship, in my opinion. And now that has flown out the door. And meanwhile, the demands on women to be more and more and more sexual have increased. This, this will sound weird, but I keep hearing from young people and people who are friends with young people, anal sex is now expected. That's not like, wow, this chick is really wild and cool. That's, that's become expected. It's now expected that you're going to wax off your pubic hair and put those stupid little things, those gems on called bejazzled. Like it's still doing uh, that. Yeah. Yeah. It's all this stuff where it's like, well, it's not just enough to have great sex. You've got to have anal sex and you've got to be willing for your partner to go have anal sex with all kinds of people. You have to decorate your vagina 
And, <laughs> oh, and by the way, you know, you know, have a baby, be back in physical condition in three months, go back to your job, earn a hundred thousand plus and come home and have anal sex. You know, it is just, I think it's really been a losing proposition for women. And what you were saying about the slippery slope, I do think it's true. And when evangelical Christians say things now that sound a bit extreme or alarmist, instead of going, I say, huh, well, let me hear more because they've been right, right about a lot of right. things. Right. Well, that's all porn um, from, from what a lot of um, people are saying this, that this is, this is the direct result of porn. It's not, and it's not just the anal thing, which is to me, I mean, I just find it so, it's almost like satire at this point, how it just like, especially because pride month has just passed, you know, like I wrote a whole sub stack about like how, how like into anal am I supposed to be exactly like how, <laughs> like how much celebration of gay sex and anal do I need to uh, engage in? in order to pass muster in wider society you freaking weirdos you but gotta like, be jazz hands about it i know jazz i'm like i'm so into it it's like this is so weird like this is so so weird it's it's like dystopian but it's also choking i hear this a lot the choking and the and spitting and all this and it's just like this is now considered um like vanilla sex and it's like I mean, it's, it isn't, it's horrifying. It's funny because it's, I mean, it's, but it's, it's horrifying and you have to laugh at it. Otherwise it becomes a very much a black pill thing. I'm very, very glad I'm no, I'm no longer in my twenties. I'm very glad I'm not experiencing the dating scene post porn. I mean, we were this generation, we were the last generation of uh, young people to experience love and sex and romance and that young kind of passion and bonding before the digital age. And I think we are at, we were very, very lucky. We dodged a bullet to come just, just too soon. You know, a, two, like a generation after the sexual revolution, we watched our, our, at least in my case, I watched my parents experiment with alternative lifestyles. And I, you know, I took away some wisdom from that, although not initially because I was young, but then we got lucky as well in that we, uh, did not have to go through this internet porn uh, revolution, which is so damaging. Um, and I think it plays into this whole idea of ethical non-monogamy because basically, and something else you said, Jen, when you said that your clients are coming in and they have to write the ship. This is a very key point because you have the sex stuff, the, the actual sex acts, which get weirder and weirder and more and more niche. But the emotional fallout from the ethical non-monogamy means that you constantly have to be in a state of working on your relationship. And that in and of itself becomes an addiction. In my opinion, it's like an emotional addiction. So, and I've been in, I've been in relationships that fall apart spectacularly. I've been divorced and you get every, in every sort of relationship that's, that's on that, on that downward trajectory. There's a time where you can't, you almost become addicted to fighting because it's, it's your main way of communicating and you can't break out of the paradigm. But what it also does is you can't do anything else basically with your life. Like, it's very hard to think about work. It's very hard to think about studying. It's very hard to think. It becomes this all-consuming thing. And that is incredibly negative for the life of an adult, especially if you're an adult with kids and you have to raise kids or you have to work in your career. You can't think about anything else. And it's such an indulgence. Like adults need to be sober and mature. Like mm -hmm. that is the definition of being an adult. So if you want to fuck around when you're in your 20s, and I did that in my, in my late teens and when I was in my, in college, my college years, and you're, the whole point of that, though, is that you're supposed to grow out of it. And now this whole society is encouraging young people 
coming into their thirties to never grow out of it, never grow out of it, never give it up, Mm -hmm. never move into the next season of your life. And that is truly, truly damaging. I think. And that's my, that's my understanding and my impression of polyamory in general is it's a constant Mm -hmm. renegotiation of the foundations and the limits and the boundaries of the relationship and a constant, constant process of repair and damage and renegotiation, which keeps you in sort of an, it keeps your relationship sort of in its infancy. And I can see how that has some appeal because as you say, you can kind of get hooked to that dramatic cycle, Totally, but it's, it, it, it's not, it's not something that leads to further development, either of the relationship or of the individual. Um, and I, interestingly, I, I did a Gottman level one certification training when I was in, in graduate school. <clears throat> and if anybody's familiar with the Gottmans, John and Julie Gottman are just a powerhouse of couples therapy. They have done so much research and they have such great uh, methods and advice for couples going through, uh, well, just for any stage of marriage or difficulty in marriage, they have, uh, they've, they've done all this research, which helps them to really predict what are, what are the, the warning signs in a relationship and how to curtail them and how to work with each other and improve communication. And they've broken it down so well. And, um, they they've done they spent so much time doing this research and trying to collect research he said in the q a for that um training that i did that somebody asked him about alternative relationship structures like polyamory and he said we've tried to study them we can't because they don't last long enough for us to get meaningful <laughs> uh, they they can't get a, a a couple or a dyad or a, or a truple or whatever they are to last long enough to really get meaningful data on how these relationships work because they're so inherently unstable. And he said, I mean, he sounded like he's open, you know, he's like, yeah, we're trying, we'd like to study them, but they just don't work. They don't, they don't work. And so I, I also tend to agree with what you said, Jennifer, about this being a, a, uh, this is like an attempt to adopt a, a, a male centric sexuality model across both sexes and to, to, just if we're just talking about the physical process of reproduction, the male contribution is is the simple act of of coitus, and so there's the that that's his contribution to the physical act of reproduction. I'm not talking about the fathering and the family that goes on. Right. The female contribution to reproduction is much more complex because she engages in that, and then she goes on to dedicate her body to the growing of the baby, and then the breastfeeding of the baby, and then this whole physical thing that is much more. Um, it's, it's much more lengthy and complex and, and multi-phasic. And we are, I, I think that both, uh, you know, I, I don't like, I really don't like to talk about like the patriarchy and this whole like anti-male thing. Cause I don't feel that way. And I also don't feel like I'm drawn towards feminism either, because I think that feminism misses the picture and it's more, there's this, there's this holistic humanism that we're missing in these discussions about how people come together there's we're we're missing important parts of both and we've really lost what the meaning of of a woman is to a great extent i mean we're totally we this this sex com, uh, commodification of sex and this obsession with with sex misses 
it like writes off the rest of a woman's value in life completely. And what do you say to women or about women who would defend this process and say, no, this is good for me. And I want that. I want to act like this. I want to behave polyamorously or have an open relationship because there's a lot of women out there who, I mean, and I don't want to dismiss their, their viewpoint. They feel like this is good for them and they would not agree that they're just doing this for their partner. What do you think about that perspective? I think it's fundamentally immature. And I think, you know, and again, a person's own take on their own life is what it is. There there wouldn't almost, there would be no point in arguing with a person directly about it. Um, But I think that what you think of yourself in, in one moment in one stage of life is not necessarily going to be what you think of yourself in another stage of life and in another moment. And the, Again, with the exception of outliers and unicorns and all that, that, yeah, the caveat is there. Um, I think it's a fundamentally dishonest way of living because you think you're being honest by being open about the um, other partners and the other emotional attachments because there are always other emotional attachments as well as the sexual connections. Um, But what you're being dishonest about is how much pain it is causing you and that the, the thing I, I think I mentioned this person last time we spoke um this you uh, not youtuber an instagram influencer I don't know she's a writer she's she has she's a, like a zine chick she's a lefty total fringe counterculture and I have a lot of respect for her she's against cancel culture and she's bright and she says interesting things she's probably in her early 30s um and she's she posts a lot about the experience of of learning to live with polyamory and one thing i notice in her and with uh, i've noticed it in a few other people online when they're talking about it is they always they always start out saying like it's really really hard and it hurts so much but you you learn to love it and that really sounds to me like a hostage situation that really sounds to me like you are completely dialing down you, all of your r- correct instincts that are telling you that this is not right like, why would it hurt? If something is good, it doesn't hurt, right? I mean, that's right. generally how I right. proceed with life, right? Like, if, if someone gives me a hug, it feels good. If someone slaps me in the face, it hurts. Which one of those is good and which one of those is bad? I mean, our instincts are there for a reason. So if you have to learn to override your instincts, you're probably doing something very wrong. And I think there's definitely cases, and I think my mother was one of them, where it doesn't hurt, I don't think that's impossible for a woman to say, actually, I genuinely am that open-minded. I'm generally that um, unrepressed that it doesn't hurt. You know what? Fine. Maybe that's the case. But the majority of people are not. And this person who is very much a counterculture uh, young woman has been very candid about how much it hurts and how much work she had to do with herself and her partner to get her to the place where she was okay with it. Um, So, I mean... I hate to mind read and sort of project, but I would not be surprised in any way if in 20 years that woman in her middle age was like, you know what, I was wrong. I don't know. Yeah, I think as you get older, you have a very different perspective, especially when you're less ruled by hormones, which you know are basically crazy choose coming through our systems. But talk about unnatural, this constant, oh, I have to undo my instincts. The reality is, 
when you value something, you are protected and possessive over it. Why do we lock the doors to our house? Do we tell just anybody they can come in our house? Anyone of the neighbors can come in the house anytime they'd like, remove things from the fridge, borrow some furniture? No. Why? Because we value what we have, what we've worked for, and it would be completely unnatural and bizarre to set no boundaries around that. And I think it's the same, but even more so with our most intimate relationships. There's totally. a great book, by the way, um, called, and it's actually written by somebody who I think considers herself a feminist and um, a bit on the left. Uh, it's by Louise Perry, and it's called The Case mm. Against the Sexual Revolution. It is yeah, I wonderful. Read that. I read that this yeah. Christmas. It was fantastic. It's a really mm-hmm. interesting read, and it really shows how this stuff does not serve women, except for, as she says, a few women who, I think she calls them Sexio-social or socio oh, High levels of socio-sexuality. Yeah. yeah, where they're just, um, you know, in that mindset of let me have lots of different sexual experiences and it doesn't seem to be upsetting to them. Although I would say, I think that will shift for many of these women too, once they yeah. find their partner that they're truly in love with and want to build a life with and once they have um, a child, that really is a big game changer. You know, there's something that I wonder, and I want to know what you guys think about this. So when I think of a married couple with children having a non-monogamous relationship, I I think about how, you know, when you're in the new phase of a relationship or you're dating, you have that intense um, excitement and buzz and you're sort of like, you're sort of feeling super, super sexual, like you're just exuding stuff. I wonder, you know, if mom and dad are going out on dates and they're getting excited about new partners, you know, are they bringing this kind of sexual energy into the home? That's kind of this nameless weird thing that the kids somehow sense, you know, mom's putting on something slinky and getting ready to go out and she's jittery and, you know, dad's staying home to babysit that night, but dad's going out a few nights later. Like, what kind of energy are they putting into the household? That's a good question. I mean, yeah. I think that that's, that's a really, um, it's, it's certainly something that's not focusing on family building, that's for sure. And whether it could be navigated in a way that's not harmful to the kids, I don't know, maybe, maybe. I mean, people do get big projects that they work on. People get big, um, you know, exciting developments in their professional life, or maybe a family member dies or something else happens. And there's a whole lot of energy directed at something that's outside of the family. And so that could be an analog, but the, the energy you're talking about uh, yeah, I wonder what that does developmentally. And that, yeah, that wasn't that. my experience in, in terms of my own childhood, but it wasn't also like a known thing. Like it wasn't um, like, it wasn't like, you know, uh, there's different families and couples in the neighborhood or in the town that do this. So it was, it was very private. And, you know, my parents, like, it's funny because when I remember my childhood, there was a lot of stuff about it in spite of this big unconventional thing that was very, was very conventional. You know, we ate dinner at the table every night and we listened to like classical music records and my parents would drink wine and discuss books. And it was extremely, um, like my father was really quite, around me was super wholesome. And he, 
you know, would teach me about astronomy and the Roman emperors. And um, it was very, it was almost like a Wes Anderson movie, to be perfectly honest. Um, and so that was, so that because, because in the wider culture, there wasn't this idea that adults need to be going out and doing their, doing, maintaining their dating life with their, you know, non-binary, um, pansexual, whatever third partner once removed. Um, but so, so I think in, in, in that sense, I was shielded from some of the, the chaos, uh, but it, it does inevitably be chaos. I mean, but think, like, think about like French, French and Italian cultures where it's like, it's almost assumed that one of the partners will stray once or more times. And it's like, I think, I think there is some kind of balance to be struck between like American, well, they used to uh, have a kind of quite a puritanical approach to that and like a absolute zero tolerance approach to it and a certain kind of like shrugging like be discreet be adult and don't you know don't don't be disgrace the family and don't drag the children into it and people will forgive you your transgressions and i think that is pro like i think dan savage calls that monogamish you know occasionally these things happen let's not burn down the house over it um, and that's, that's probably a happy medium, but like, it's, it doesn't seem like America can handle happy mediums. It's all, it's all or nothing over there. Um, and I think it's because fundamentally, and I think it does center around the woman, although I will say I, def I, I can't think of any man in my, in my peer group who isn't at least outwardly totally monogamous. Like all of my guy friends, my husband, my first husband, totally monogamous. They, I, you know, I don't think it's that common. I agree with you, Jen, that it's like a phallic center, centered and, and centered around the type of sexuality that men have, not the type of sexuality that women have. But I think more men than not want a stable family with a couple of kids and a happy wife, and they will do almost anything to, uh, to create that. I, that's my, my, my personal experience only. But I think what's happened in the United States is that there's this the idea, the ideal woman in the United States, going back at least until the fifties, till the fifties, was fundamentally like an immature kind of adolescent girl character. So, like, if you think of like an Italian woman or a French woman, you know, or, or, or like South American women or Eastern European women, there's something they have a lot more gravitas and they have a lot more um, panache. And and they then they, they can be the, the the in the ingenue phase they they you know they're they're seductive they're beautiful they make men crazy they go crazy and it's all chaos because that's what that's what youth is, and then they can graduate into these different phases and that's accepted, whereas Americans were perpetually stuck in this like teen girl high school girl vibe, um, and now it's taken on the even worse turn of oh now we have to add in all sorts of perversion. And it's like, it's like, you know, how did we went from Marilyn Monroe to like Pamela Anderson to like some deranged chick who's like banging five guys a, a night and like loves anal. Like, but, but it's still fundamentally very immature. It's just immaturity. This is not adult behavior. Toddlers cannot control their impulses. Toddlers are constantly exposing themselves and playing with their privates and doing inappropriate things. We're supposed to grow out of that. Like somehow the entire like popular culture, the popular imagination of the United States is captured and is stuck in this toddler phase. I mean, what do you guys think? You guys are therapists. Well, I'm kind have... of thinking, okay, Jennifer, do you want no, to go, go ahead? ahead? No, go ahead. Okay, so I, um, 
I have to wonder about the role when you're talking about monogamy and and the men that you know are outwardly monogamous. I I've just um, last year it's my my own personal anecdote is that I just ended a 12 year relationship, and it was over his repeated infidelity, and the infidelity had been going on for um, at least nine of those 12 years, and there so it's a long story i i'm not afraid to talk about it i could get into it but it might get us it might derail us but um i have to i have had to search myself for my own answer to this question about uh, here i'm being really sloppy about broaching it but pornography at, at, to what extent is pornography non-monogamy and to what extent is pornography the gateway to other kinds of of more um, significantly and uh, blatantly non-monogamous behavior. And so in, in this case, it very much started with porn and then branched out into other activities and things. And, and since I've had this experience in my life, this, this blew up in my life in 2014 with, and we separated for a year while we tried to work through it. And I learned a lot and I read a lot and I talked with a lot of people. And what I found was that under the surface of a lot of seemingly, you know, monogamous relationships with some tension or some, some difficulty around sexuality underneath of a lot of those relationships, the, the, the husband actually has a, a rampant porn addiction. I think that's going on quite a bit. And maybe that's a whole nother topic. And we're here like 15 minutes before we're going to wrap up. I don't know if we have time to really go into that or if it's going to take it, derail us from the, the, the polyamory ethical non-monogamy discussion, or if it branches nicely from that, but I'm interested in hearing what you guys think about that. And as you were talking about all of the seeming monogamy around you, I, I have come to a point where I do not, I do not think that chronic porn use is monog is compatible with a monogamous relationship i think it represents non-monogamy and is directly destructive to the bond and the relationship in in a an otherwise monogamous partnership and um yeah after and after that the, i guess just segueing after that relationship fell apart last year i did try the dating app thing for a little bit. And I found so many people tagging their profiles with ENM. That's, it's just full of married men looking for um, a side, a side chick, you know, even in this age group, you know, it's just full of married men who are saying, I have the, I have permission to go out and, and I'm looking to explore sex with you, but I already have a relationship. So I don't want a relationship. And, oh, well, and I have to wonder, yeah, exactly. And, but that, but that is the exact behavior that my partner was doing. It started with pornography and then he was on the apps and he was doing that seeking and yeah. he was, you know, doing that same thing. So, um, I, anyway, so I, I just kind of wanted, when you said that all of the men around you seem like they're totally happy with monogamy, I'm wondering, I think that a lot of people think that their man is happy with monogamy. Meanwhile, you know, what's going on? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I definitely agree with you that uh, uh, like, 
constant porn consumption is not does not count as monogamy. It, mm-hmm. It's not. It's not. I mean, I wouldn't have said that by the way ten years ago. I would have been like, oh, don't be ridiculous. Oh my god, like who cares? And you're not. I mean, I had no. I had no idea of what porn was and probably was then or what it then was about to become and it probably already was that 10 years ago um i mean aren't there isn't there evidence that it's like extremely addictive there's so, yes. there's something very particular yeah. to the brain so it's like cocaine or crack well, and, not and, like a glass of wine where i was like that's a glass yeah. of wine what harm does it do it's incredibly um, addictive because it taps into something that's in, like that's that's fundamental it's a fundamental drive yeah. and it satisfies it in a really highly charged way and not only that, but when the, and there's this, this woman who does this really good uh, porn podcast, it's called Porn Brain Rewire, oh, Dr. Wow. Trish Lee, L-E-I-G-H, you should check her out if you're interested, it's fantastic. But um, what she talks about is that when, when uh, you climax to pornography you still secrete all the same bonding hormones that you secrete during any climax but what you're actually bonding to is this process of of voyeurism you're actually bonding yourself closer and closer to the technological act of voyeurism instead and and making it harder and harder to bond to an actual partner so you're you're messing your your mind up when you're when you're engaging in repeated pornography use yeah, and it's it's also the case that, like with a drug, you have to titrate the dose upwards because the same yeah. amount no longer has the same pleasurable impact. Yeah. So very often people are watching what we think of as very mainstream porn, and then they progress to strange kind of maybe violent porn or just you know things that we would consider bizarre. More taboo. And- yeah. more taboo, um, more kind of disturbing. And then sometimes it jumps, jumps just the porn use into um, acting out in terms of um, hiring escorts or trying to meet people through the apps for casual hookups. So yeah, it does seem to have an extremely addictive effect. And I think it's even more so now that it's just so widely available yeah. No, on the computers, you don't have to go into the CD store anymore and worry that one of your neighbors is going to see you coming out. You don't also. even have to go onto Pornhub. You can go onto Twitter and find it. Yeah, yeah. And you know what else I think, too? I think there's something about the, um, the I forgot the name for it, but it's, it's because now you can just hit a button and you can just keep going from, from thing to thing to thing, from site to site to site, from image to image to image. It's that um, sort of hand, eye, brain, rapid yeah. fire um, gratification, and that increases the dopamine hit and increases the addictive um, power of it. Yeah, very, uh, very, very unfortunately, because I, you know, yeah, when I was younger, I thought, oh, you know, porn, and and there are people realistically who will use porn in in the way that we used to think everybody uses porn as an occasional sort of thing, right? Um, maybe even to have some fun and variation in their relationship, and they're using it with a partner, and there absolutely are those people. So nothing whatsoever against them, um, but it has it definitely has the power to become completely addictive and derail a person's life. Yeah. Yeah. And this is even getting into the other societal harms. So just on the 
just on the level of what it does to the user and their intimate relationships. Right. Yeah. Never mind the producer, the, 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 the stars. The content producers. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think like all of this stuff is um, related to a question I ask myself all the time. And that is, is it possible to have a secular morality? And I think that, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, certainly, certainly 20 years ago, I, w- I would have been like, of course. I mean, I have one. I was raised in one, you know, I, I mean, in many ways, I, I had a very kind of like stable um, upbringing, even though I was aware of these dy- these very insta- unstable and unconventional dynamics. But I don't think it is anymore. I think I think the proof, like I said, is in the, it's in the pudding. It's like putting salt in the cake and wondering why it's salty. Um, I think that our culture has has catastrophically failed to replace the kind of punitive Christian-based or religious-based morality with something that is still still has the same basic tenets and the same values, but taken having taken God out of the equation. I mean, I just look around me and I think, I mean, I still think that I I still call myself an atheist. I'm not a religious person. And I have a more I live by a set of moral values. Um, but I look around me and I don't see that reflected in society at all. I don't see it reflected in, in the education system. I don't see it reflected in the politics. I don't see it reflected in the pop culture. I don't see it reflected in the way people dress and they walk around the streets. Like it, it's reflected nowhere almost, except in the, in, in the growing kind of conservative backlash maybe. But like if you look at the seven deadly sins, like there's not one of those that I wouldn't abide by. There's not one single one that I would say, oh no, I, that, that's too punitive. That's not part of my moral code. Not one of those that I wouldn't want my husband or my son or myself or my best friend to live by. Not one. Like if you think about it, it's like a very, very good set of not to do list. It's a very, it's very reputable. It, it would still completely hold true. And yet we've thrown it all out of the window and we, th- I think people like me thought, oh, it's okay. We're sophisticated now. We're secular. We like science and like culture and art. And we understand, like, we understand the vagaries of human emotion. But now I'm looking around, I'm like, no, we were, I was a dumb idiot to think that we were sophisticated. We were actually just acting like chimps the whole time. <laughs> and we never should have thrown this stuff out. <laughs> well, it's, a, it seems like when, you know, what, what tradition, what religion and, and religious, culture offers is a box and is a is an anchor and is a way of understanding oneself within a certain framework and so yeah. there's this idea that perhaps perhaps that got that box got too tight and was too restrictive and people saw other ways of doing things that looked more liberating and looked more exciting and you know you talk about the bohemian fringe and the mm-hmm. the fun that was being had over there and people wanted a little bit more of that but what we find now is that that's the box is completely blown apart and there's right. this brutality of endless choice and yes. with endless choice becomes a, an unmooring and a lack of some kind of anchor and what are people doing they're just finding new boxes for themselves they're right. desperate to get into a gender box they're desperate to define right. their their sexual stru- structure they want a critical race theory in order to define what the races mean and we're putting these really tight boxes around everything now right. that are just as tight if not tighter than the religious yeah. boxes we escaped what a generation or so ago yeah 
Totally. I mean, I think morality literally just exists to control the chaos that sex and sexuality and sexual desire create. Sexual desire brings chaos. And when you're young, you can shrug your shoulders at it because you're, you're highly your sexual power and you have your most um, choice and you think it's great. Oh, it's so great. It's so fun. Um, and like, what's not to love here? Um, but you, you, you don't, the damage kind of, you, you, you twig to the damage as you proceed in life. And we have no, there's nothing out there controlling the sexual chaos. If that, if anything, the, the, I don't know, the powers that be, the shadowy hand of whatever, I, I, I don't know who's doing it exactly, but if anything, they're encouraging the chaos that sex and an overemphasis on sex and, and a completely unleashed sexuality brings. They're encouraging it. They want to bring it to kindergarten. They want to bring it to every, every facet of our lives. They want to bring it to every monogamous household. They want to destroy every unit that they possibly can. And it's like, it's like the, you know, the, in the movies, like it, maybe in, in um, Ghostbusters or whatever, when, you, when the, the spirits, the evil spirits escape and all those like little shadowy black figures are like streaming out. That's what culture looks like to me now. Hmm. And those, oh my gosh, those like, exactly, yes. Right, those yes. like sexual exactly. demons are just flying around us everywhere at all times. And there's a few people holding on, actually more than a few. There's, I, I would say even the majority of people are holding on and, and trying to put an umbrella up and protect themselves and protect their loved ones from these flying sex demons. <laughs> <laughs> but they're they're out of the box like they are oh out man of the box. i'm so and tempted these... to title this episode flying sex demons <laughs> okay you totally have to and i have something i have something very weird and vulnerable to say okay. so this is this is probably and i hope but just my own special weirdness but this experience of sexuality becoming um so kind of like unmoored from I think healthy attachments and, and also the sort of force of it. If we will go into schools, we will tell your kid they could be born in the wrong body. Um, and just the sort of sexual demons, as you put it, it has really made me for the first time in my life feel negative towards sex. And Same. I, and I, I like, I actually have become sort of grossed out by it. And okay, granted, you know, full disclosure, I'm 56 and I've gone through menopause. So I understand there's the hormonal component to that as well, but I'm not entirely convinced that it, even if I was in my twenties, that I wouldn't feel a bit the way I feel now, because I see, I see how sex can be used in such a negative way, such a dangerous way, a harmful yep. way, how it can be used against people's perverted impulses perversion how it can be used to harm and abuse children and it has disgusted me and I feel really sad about that because I've always felt like sex was this beautiful expression of life I saw it as spiritual maybe I was even a little woo-woo about it um mm. and now I just feel now I feel kind of sickened I feel and repulsed yeah and I think that's really you know I, I don't know that that's healthy on my part but I think it is just the energy around it is so chaotic no I think that, that to me now that's a really amazing way to articulate yeah. that and I I felt something similar as you're saying that it 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 really puts a clearer frame around something that I felt when I found out that my my ex was cheating on me in 2014 and I was um I was you know, what was I, 37, 
and I had a new baby. I had a, a four month old and I discovered these, I, I discovered all of this hookup stuff. And I discovered these photos that he had taken of a stripper a photo shoot he had done. that was really tasteful as nudes of her and another and it was like and all this and I talked with her and it's like he had this whole relationship with her and it, and all of these this email account where he had been involved in all kinds of stuff and I don't care who knows about this because it's it's my story too you know it's not just his privacy but um I I was I felt like I felt like I'd been so open with him in relationship we it was this wonderful connection and I'd been pregnant through two pregnancies with this person and he'd been by my side having my babies and and then to find this whole like depth of of sexual betrayal I felt alienated from sex itself for a period of my life I mean I probably went through a year of just I that that feeling you're describing of almost this like disconnection and repulsion um it reminds me of that that phase in my life where it was just it was like debauchery full scale on every level and it was just right under the surface of my life with me just having these like rose tinted trad wife glasses on where i thought i was raising happy babies and there's something so yeah. soulless about that kind of detached sex yeah. betrayal mm -hmm. and a betrayal of a partner especially a partner who's had two kids with you i just mm -hmm. think it's really but yeah it's, yeah, it's yeah, it feels soulless. To me, it feels like the opposite of what sex really is, which in my idealized mind, it's like the bullet, sort of like the merging of two souls or two psyches, you know? Is, is Elliot so just saying he agrees? That. Is he just like, yeah, yeah, he's I agree. Har he's harassing the neighbors. Oh. <laughs> well, I think there's been studies that show that like young people actually don't have very much sex now. Like, by, and I think that that's exactly, they're, they're picking up the same thing you are, Jen um that they don't it's gross it's grotesque it, it's it's a total turnoff like the all subtlety is gone all nuance is gone all eroticism is gone like we we don't talk about the erotic and we don't talk about lust anymore we just talk about sex as if it's just this thing like 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 eating a big mac or taking a dump like it's not it's a much more interesting thing you know it's like it's not just i'm tired i'm gonna go to sleep there's so many there's so much more to it and like why it's so weird to me that we don't talk about lust when we are literally surrounded by it and we have chicks twerking in our faces and furries like crawling around in our faces and like pride flags everywhere so we're supposed to celebrate anal like non-stop and yet no one's talking about the basically like, what is lust and what does it do to us what does it do to us when we're young what does it do to us to when we're when we're in family making mode what does it do to us when we're middle-aged and at what point do we come to terms with its power and for good and for ill? Like nobody is having mature conversations about anything yeah. in, in mainstream culture, nobody. And I just don't understand like where have the adults gone? Because we have done so many, so many terrible things to young children, young people. Like, like they're, 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 they're them saying the same thing. Like, you know, there's all this stuff that Gen Z just don't, do not have nearly as much sex in their teens and 20s as Gen X did. And I mean, who can possibly blame them? Who can blame these girls for desperately trying to convince themselves that they're boys and chopping their tits off because they don't want to be pornified? I mean, like yeah. the, uh, the alternative, like if you know who uh, Alabama Luella Baker is, maybe that's not the right name, Barker, Barker. 
So there's a drummer from some just execrable, like, naughties rock band, whose name I forget, like Blink 27 or Blink Twice or something. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and his daughter is now 16, and she looks like a blow-up sex doll. She does not look human. She's Kourtney Kardashian's stepdaughter. She has these massive tits. Her skin is, like, absolutely, like, nice plastic you would get. Her, she's got these hideous weave, like it looks like it's obviously not real hair. The nails and every picture of her on Instagram, because I follow her, um, is like her in like a latex rubber mini dress with like, uh, you know, tie on the side. And I'm like, you're 16? You are being violated. You are being mind raped. And you're, you think you're getting off on it. This is insane. Like, this is not, this is not a healthy uh, idea of a 16-year-old girl. And yet everyone's running around like, oh, my God, it's empowerment. I mean, no wonder if, if I would, if when I was 16, I saw her, I would have turned trans too. I am almost sure of it. And I was never a yeah. tomboy. I was always an extremely feminine child. All I ever wanted to be in life was a mom. Yeah. I always got on really well with men. And I always, I've always had a good rapport. Like, I've never been a tomboy. I've never been into rough things. But I would have been... Like I found Drew Barrymore at 16 to be like a, a god, like an Amazon goddess, yeah. intimidating person. And she dressed in like a sweater and jeans on, in magazine covers. Can you imagine those visuals, those visual, those sensory stimuli that are being pumped into the eyeballs of children and young people. Yeah. And they're being made to think that this is beauty or this is even yeah. human. It's not, it's not. Like, where are the adults? Like, we as a generation, like the three of us and the, the wider culture, like, we really need to take this fucking this this train wreck back. Like, we need to we need to un unwind some shit here. Well, there really is something to that competitive competitive market of beauty that squashes girls. It just yeah, it, you know, when beauty it's is horrifying. augmented to an unattainable level, it is. In, it is terribly intimidating to girls and it can make you just want to drop out of the race. So totally. And yeah, I, I think, uh, I think that's, I'd really love to do this again. Would you guys like yeah. to have another, a third conversation about this? Cause I, I, I always, I feel like there's so much more, there's so much further to go with this. You know what I'm interested in talking about too, although maybe people wouldn't be interested in hearing it is like the, this idea of like the, why we, I know we talked about monogamy last time, but the actual nuts and bolts of it is like why, you know, walking the walk and trotting that path through the uphills is literally the lesson of your life. And it is the path to maturity or spiritual enlightenment or whatever the hell you want to call it. It's the boring stuff that matters. It's the boring, monog monotonous, like same old, same old. That is the stuff of which your life is made. And nobody ever acknowledges that. And I don't think you can have, you cannot have maturity without accepting that. That's my two cents. Wow. And I think that's something that we should talk about next. Cause like, you know, if we had time now, it would be good to segue to that now. Like we're talking about these, like anything goes and polycules and like, I can ha screw anyone because like we're so enlightened, but actually that's not, that's just perpetual adolescence. Yeah. And like the past maturity lies elsewhere and it lies in all the boring shit, unfortunately. <laughs> Yeah, beautifully said. Oh, I love that. I love that. Yeah, I think that's so true. I'd love to talk more about that. Yeah, I think so too. And I think it stands as a nice counterpoint to the 
the immature continual foundation building process of sexual identity exploration within a relationship, that beginning stage of the relationship, that is, this is the counterpoint. It's the, okay, totally. now we've gotten past that. Now we live. Yes, mm-hmm. totally. Well, I, I think maybe that seems like a good place to wrap it up for now. And um, I'm so grateful for this opportunity to have this really good conversation with the two of you. Thank you for Same. having me. Yeah, thank you so much, guys. All right. Let's thank you so soon. much, guys. See you talk soon.